So today as we continue our study through the Psalms, we come to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. Now Psalm 9 may be half of a psalm. We're going to study half of Psalm 9 today, just about a little bit over. But Psalm 9 may be half of a psalm. There are many who believe that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 originally comprised one psalm. Uh, some of the reasons for that include when you go through Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, it's a kind of broken Hebrew acrostic looking through Psalm 9 and then making your way into Psalm 10. It's not a perfect acrostic, it's an incomplete one. Also, when you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will find that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 comprise one psalm. You'll also notice that when you come to Psalm 10, Psalm 10 does not include a superscript. So for those reasons, many have supposed that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 originally comprised one psalm. However, when you get into the Masoretic text and the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll see that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are separate. And as you see that our translations, our American or Protestant Bibles, if you will, follow that breakdown. So when we come to this psalm, we may be studying part of a psalm that was originally considered um, as one with Psalm 10, but doubtless God had a point in putting them both together, even if they were sung as separate psalms, which just speaks to the beautiful and divine arrangement of the psalms. And we'll see even more of that as we continue to study through the book of Psalms. So we're going to take Psalm 9 um, on its own, because there's plenty to chew in. And there, there are reasons why people think of them to be distinct as well. There's a little bit of a thematic distinction when you look at Psalm 9 in comparison with Psalm 10 and the Hebrew text that I referenced. But we're going to look at Psalm 9. We're going to take it as it is. And there's plenty to chew, um, chew upon as we study it. Now, as we have done in previous studies, before we get into the psalm, we're going to consider the superscript. Look at the superscript. It reads, To the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. So sandwiched in between two familiar statements, right? The familiar statement of to the chief musician. He was essentially the music overseer for the, for the, the ministry of music in Israel as they would come to worship before the tabernacle and subsequently the temple and so on. He was the music overseer, the music supervisor. And we find out again that this was a psalm of David. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, authored this psalm. And sandwiched in between that, we find this interesting description. To the tune of death of the Son. Now, I think as a New Testament Christian, when you read that, your mind immediately goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of the death of the Son of God on the cross for your sins. Understandably, you would go there. You say the death, you read the death of the Son, and you're like, okay, I know the Son I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the Son of God who died for my sins. I understand you going there. I go there too. I just love even thinking about it. Give me an excuse to think about Jesus. But when we think about what's actually being said here, first let's understand it was likely, though there are some disagreements about this, but the greater consensus is this was likely a specific tune. To the tune of the death of the Son, or death of the Son. Now, as to the meaning of this title or tune, there are a number of suggestions. Perhaps the most prominent one is that the word son, to quote the commentator Eric Lane, might be used in the sense of chosen one or champion. It may have been composed to celebrate the slaughter of Goliath, the Philistines' chosen champion. Now, if this psalm was used to celebrate a decisive victory that was won against the Philistines, and you could look at 2 Samuel 5 for this, um, Eric Lane proposes that that may be the context, this would have been a fitting psalm. To take the tune to a previous tune that was used to celebrate the death of the Philistine champion Goliath and then to sing that in light of a decisive victory over the Philistines, the kind of which you see in 2 Samuel 5, it would be a very fitting tune indeed. It's also worth noting that numerous commentators reference how an ancient Chaldee version reads like this, as far as the superscript goes. Concerning the death of the champion who went out between the camps, referring to Goliath. I like how Spurgeon put it when he wrote, Believing that out of a thousand guesses 
this is at least as consistent with the sense of the psalm as any other, we prefer it. And the more especially so, because it enables us to refer it mystically to the victory of the Son of God over the champion of evil, even to enemy of souls. So those are some uh, proposals as to the meaning of this, or what was likely a tune, death of the Son. This is indeed, and you'll notice as we go through it, you probably noticed it in the scripture reading, this is a triumphal psalm. This is a psalm that the persecuted and oppressed people of God can sing in every generation as they wait with full assurance of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, His triumphant defeat over evil, and the manifestation of God's justice on a complete and global scale. And with that comes the end of all injustice. Now with that being said, let's get into the psalm itself. There is plenty for us to learn. We begin in Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2, where we read, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So in these first two verses, you have spirit-compelled resolutions. You have a commitment to wholehearted praising. You have bold and comprehensive declarations. You have a commitment to God-centered rejoicing, as well as a commitment to God-directed singing. All of that within two verses. It is worth noting, however, a little bit more of the context in which these statements are found. Just scroll ahead, if you will, to verse 13. In verse 13, David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. So verses 1 and 2 are not divorced from verse 13. So think of what David's saying. He's having this commitment, declaring this commitment to praise and worship in the midst of a time in which he still has to cry out to God and say, have mercy on me. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. Now what's sparking this praise in verses 1 and 2, these commitments to praise, you're going to see it as we study the psalm. It's kind of a mix of him reflecting back to the way in which God has delivered him from enemies in the past. It is, I also believe, glances to the ultimate destiny of God's victory over evil, as well as mingled in there with the prospect of God delivering him from the current situation in which he was in. You get all of those viewpoints here. He's looking back. He's looking forward. He's looking further forward to the ultimate victory of God over evil. So that's a little bit of the context in which we find these opening verses. And I do want to ask you a question I think is helpful. Question for the purpose of reflection. How well do you find yourself praising God as you wait for deliverance? David is here waiting for deliverance. And you're going to find him praising God throughout the psalm. You find declarations of his commitment to praise God. And so let me ask you the question, even as I put the question to myself. How well do you Praise God as you wait for Him to come through in a giving matter that you are praying to Him about. Perhaps you find yourself oftentimes waiting to be delivered from the muck and the mire and to have your feet set upon the rock before you start praising. I understand that. I think a lot of times when you're in the muck and the mire, what do you think to do? Well, praise may not come first to your mind. Petition may come first to your mind. Like, God, get me out of here. Have mercy on me. I need help. I need you. And that's normal, and that's right, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think we could also learn from David right here. We could learn from Paul and Silas as they were sitting in a Philippian jail in the prison and in the middle of the night they're singing to God. And we could remember that songs of praise to God can be sung in the midst of the mire. You don't have to leave the mire. Nay, you don't want to leave the mire without having first praised God within the mire. And I love that we see David do that kind of thing over and over again. We see Paul and Silas do it in Acts 16. And may God find us doing that even in the midst of our mire, crying out to Him for help, but also calling out to Him with praise. Well, let's look at the praise. There's a lot of instruction in this praise, I believe. First, notice David's Spirit-inspired resolve. Four times in these two verses, we see the words, I will. So we have strong statements communicating David's strong commitment to wholehearted worship. Notice David didn't say, I may... Or I hope to. 
He's talking right to God and He's saying, I will. I will praise You. I will tell of Your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in You. I will sing praise to Your name, O Most High. I think we should join David. And maybe if you're like me, you preface it with something like this. Oh Lord, the Spirit of God helping me. I will praise You. And by Your grace with my whole heart. I will tell of all Your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in You. And I will sing praise to Your name. I love how David uses the second person language here. He's telling this to God. He's not just telling this to others about what he's going to do. He's saying this to God. So you've got communion actually happening in the midst of these declarations. So notice the I will statements, right? So David is expressing here, and it's instructive for us, because think about it, don't forget, all of Israel was expected to sing this. This wasn't just David's song. This was a song for the people of God. So all of Israel was expected to say I will statements just like this. So that's the first bit of instruction I think we get. Second thing I want us to call our attention to, I want to call our attention to, is that we shouldn't look past the phrase with a whole heart. David's wholehearted commitment was to worship God with a whole heart. Musicians, before they would you know, lead the people of God in song, have a responsibility to make sure the instrument is in tune. I can remember one time a, a talented musician, a brother in Christ, I remember him leading uh, some songs for, I think it was a gathering of pastors, and I felt for him because he was in a position where I guess he was busy and before he went to lead in some of the songs, he didn't tune his guitar and the guitar was out of tune. And he had a great voice, probably still has a great voice. And as he's playing, it's like, and it's like, and I I remember talking with him after and kind of, you know, like, hey, he says his voice well covered a lot of the bing, bong, 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 doom sounds, but it it was just, it made for a funny memory. Um, but it can be a distraction in the midst of worship. So musicians have a responsibility to make sure their instruments are in tune before they go to the Lord, uh, before they lead the people of God in song. And I think that we do well to remember that before we go to God in song, we should have our hearts tuned rightly. I mean, you think of athletes, the way some athletes get hyped up for a game, right? If you've ever seen like a sports game, and while they're doing like the pregame, all of a sudden you see like glimpses of the players, and they walk in with their headphones, right? And they're listening to something. Why? They're trying to get hyped up. They're trying to get prepared. They're getting fired up for the game. And think of how often we come into worship just like, you know, we, we, we kind of drag ourselves in. And I want to tell you, if you ever feel like that, I understand. Drag yourself into worship and don't let tuning your heart rightly be a barrier from entering into worship. No way. You come, if you're broken, if you're heavy hearted, you come into the presence of God. But if you have the wherewithal, coming into the presence of God on the Sunday morning and say, you know what, I want to make sure my heart is tuned rightly. I don't know how often you sing during the week, but this is a precious thing. Regardless of how often you sing privately, when you come in the midst of the assembly, you're doing something so special and so unique. You're gathering with the people of God corporately. And so there's a sense in which to use uh, language from the athletic world. We want to bring our A game. But if we don't have our A game, don't ever let that stop you from coming. And you come and you sing with a broken heart and maybe with a quiet voice. But nonetheless, you want to do your best to have your heart tuned um, rightly. Uh, I think James Montgomery Boyce made quite a poignant statement when he wrote, We do not praise God with our lips very much, if at all. And when we do, if we do, we praise Him half-heartedly. I think a great way to avoid that is knowing our proclivity to do that. And the more you remember your proclivity to render unto God half-hearted worship, the more you'll be prepared to guard against that. When David says he's going to worship God with his whole heart, the idea here is essentially that he's going to worship God with the entirety of his being, to the best that he can. And if you think about the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the greatest commandment. And one of the ways to kind of strive for that and to kind of go for that as best as you can is to seek to praise God with a whole heart, with all of yourself. Third, I think we should also consider David's commitment to comprehensive declarations of what God has done. He says here, I will tell of all your marvelous works. That's a pretty comprehensive declaration. 
Now, in the Hebrew, the word for marvelous works, it's one word, and it speaks to those works that are surpassing or extraordinary, often used in the Old Testament with reference to God's redemptive miracles in history, like the parting of the Red Sea and so on. In Psalm 72, Solomon wrote the following, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Who alone works wonders. He is, among other things, a wonder worker, a marvelous worker. David wanted to tell of all of God's marvelous works. I think this is a great portion of text to apply. In preparing for this message, during the week and reflecting on this text, I had this text in my mind and in one of my morning readings, I was reading through Acts 8 and Acts 9. And I thought, what a great opportunity to apply Psalm 9 in what I'm reading in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, for some reason, Zachary came to my mind. I'm reading Acts 8 and I'm like, I don't know if Zachary knows about these wonderful works that God did through Philip. Because if you read through Acts 8, God did some amazing things through Philip. In Acts chapter 8, we read of how Philip was used by God to cast out unclean spirits. And as they came out, they were crying with a loud voice. They came out of many who were possessed. Philip was used by God to heal those who were paralyzed and lame. We think of also how an angel of God spoke to Philip and he gave him directions so that he would go in the direction of this Ethiopian eunuch who just so happened, so to speak, to be reading from Isaiah 53. And then there's this divine appointment for Philip. Philip preaches Christ to the eunuch at that moment. The eunuch believes the gospel. The eunuch is baptized. And then God gives an amazing witness to the testimony of Philip by the Holy Spirit snatching up Philip. And he's gone. What that must have looked like for the Ethiopian eunuch and his caravan. Next thing we know when we're reading on the text that Philip is found later at a different place. And so one of the ways you could apply Psalm 9 is by reading something like that, maybe looking at a child or a family member and thinking, I don't know if they know about this. I want to tell of God's marvelous works. Did you know God did this? Did you know God used a man to heal those who were lame and paralyzed in Acts chapter 8? His name was Philip. Do you know that the Holy Spirit snatched up this man? He was there. He preached Christ. And then the next thing you know, he was taken from there and he was brought somewhere else. Do you know God did this? And you're declaring, you're telling of God's marvelous works. Fourth, I think we should take notice of uh, what David wrote when he said, I will be glad and rejoice in you. Can worship truly be worship if this component is missing? It's just a question I ask myself. David says, I will be glad and rejoice in you. Can worship really be worship if that component is missing? Well, you may nuance your answer in a bunch of ways, but it is worth asking the question nonetheless. David is saying basically here that he is going to be glad and joyful in God. You can say that. You always have a reason, regardless of what situation you find yourself in, you always have a reason to be glad and joyful in God. And finally, fifth, notice David was going to sing. He said, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Again, don't forget, all of God's people were meant to say this. This may surprise you, though it shouldn't. God wants you you to sing to Him. Not just you in general, (laughs) but you specifically. You may have given yourself a religious exemption saying, well, I I don't sing because my voice is not good and I feel self-conscious. And you may have given yourself a kind of religious exemption, but God has not granted you that religious exemption. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's not granted. Denied. You're meant to say what David said here. You're meant to say to Him, I will sing praise to Your name, O Most High. However in tune or out of tune your voice is, however good or however bad it sounds, you are called to sing to Him. It's part of what we all are meant to do when we gather here together on these days. So there's a lot here. And notice, um, notice that language. I will sing praise to Your name, O Most High. El Elyon. We see that language first used in Genesis 14. It speaks of God being the exalted over all one. 
the sovereign one. He's the most high. You see it in the Old Testament, but you also see it in the New Testament. It's part of the language that Stephen used shortly before he was stoned. He identified God as the most high. Acts chapter 7, verse 48. So may you, by the grace of God, declare to God that you will sing. You'll celebrate His attributes, His excellencies, and His sovereignty. So now we move on in verses 3 through 6. We start to see an immediate occasion for this praise. David says, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. Note the word shall is questionable there. I'll come back to that in a moment. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. So again, we see David make these declarations in verses 1 and 2, but now we start seeing a little bit more of the occasion for the declarations that we saw in verses 1 and 2. When David said here, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. The verbs are progressive imperfects. And what that means is, as seen in other translations, is that you can remove the word shall here. And it essentially can be rendered, I would argue, better like this. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. Now, why do I say that? Because it appears, as you go through these verses, that David is kind of looking back. He's looking back to see what God has done, and he's kind of citing the principle. This is what God has done. This is just the kind of thing that God does. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and fall. This is what God has done. This is the principle. This is how God so often works. That's kind of the idea here. David paints a picture of his enemies being unable to escape. Notice the language here. Despite turning back, right? When my enemies turn back, but it doesn't matter, they can't escape. They fall and they perish in God's presence. The language in the Hebrew could be rendered literally before God's face. It connotes God's appearing against them, as it were. And now think about that. Per the language here, It's simply the manifestation of God's presence which is enough to defeat His enemies. God appears. They are before His face. And the poetic imagery that's painted here gives that imagery as though to say, here is God and the enemies just fall. No battle, no war, just God's presence manifested. Battle over. Battle over. When we think of the Lord's appearing, we think of it appropriately so as a glorious thing. And it is indeed a glorious thing. Don't forget though, and we'll see more of this in the message shortly, it does have serious negative connotations for the Lord's enemies when He appears. But in the Old Testament, we see that the Lord's appearing is often connoted with negative consequences. In Psalm 21, verse 9, David wrote, When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. Likewise, in Psalm 34, verse 16, we read, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. It's as though God's enemies appear before His face, and as they turn, they stumble, they fall, and they perish at His presence. And unless we we think this is only an Old Testament thing, we do well to note that in 1 Peter 3, verse 12, quoting Old Testament text, we read, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the manifestation of God's presence is against those who are unrepentant in their evil. A little bit more of that in a moment, but we go on. Verse 4, we noted that David said, For you have maintained my right and my cause. So in the conflict, David doesn't go into details perhaps in this context so that the people of God could sing it in its general way and it could have greater application to the to people of God more readily in this psalm. David's position in this conflict was a right one. His enemies were in the wrong and he esteems God here to be the judge who upheld justice. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You're the judge and you've upheld the right in this case, in this matter. David saw that his deliverance as well as his enemies' defeat as God's righteous judgment. He said, you sat on the throne judging in righteousness. 
This is essentially, if you were to go back to the message I preached on Psalm 7, this is essentially what David was praying for in Psalm 7, verse 7, when he talked about God being the one who he sought to return on high, return to that judgment seat. Now I want you to notice what David is doing here. David doesn't look to be the kind of guy who would walk around singing what was sung about him. Right? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. That's not the kind of guy that David appears to be at all. Who is he saying granted him the victory? you got the picture of like two sides fighting in a battle. And the victory is ultimately decided by the one who sits on the throne. You have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. And in the immediate context of the psalm, the picture is you got these two sides battling, David and his enemies. And the only reason why David is delivered and his enemies are not is because Yahweh sits on the throne and judges righteously. <clears throat> David does realize, though, that this isn't always the case for God's people. And you're going to see that a little bit later on in the psalm. And he has something to say about that, even in this Old Testament context as well. David goes on and he writes in verse 5, You have rebuked nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. As one commentator notes, the three verbs are present perfects, emphasizing the act and continuing results. So again, David is likely looking to these past deliverances that have continuing results here. He sees God's judgments in the past as kind of continuous tokens of what God does and will ultimately do. The rebuke here, when he says, you have rebuked the nations, it's not just, if you will, a rebuke of mere words. It's the speaking of a kind of judicial sentence, the manifestation of God's wrath that's spoken of here. You do see the idea here, um, I think, well-connected in Jesus' coming. The idea of rebuking the nations and nations and enemies being vanquished at the very presence of the Son of God. Both of those concepts that we see right here in Psalm 9 are connected to Christ's coming, I think. The imagery we see here, we see pretty clearly communicated in the Old Testament and the New Testament with respect to Christ's coming. Think about this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, speaking of Christ's return, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall slay the wicked. So in Psalm 9, right here, we read, You have rebuked the nations. And that rebuke, look at the context, it's connected with him destroying the wicked, blotting their name out. Well, what's said here poetically, and does have application to Yahweh's judgments in history, will ultimately be manifested in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. What about what we just read earlier? What about the appearance and the presence of the Son of God? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, we read, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. There's other places in the New Testament you could look as well. You could look at Revelation 19.11. From his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So what Yahweh has done in principle, what he's done in the past... What he does, generally speaking, you take the kind of language that David is using here, is what will be done in a complete way, in a full manifested way, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now the language of destroying the wicked connotes the mortal perishing of the wicked. The language of blotting out, you have blotted out their names forever and ever, likely, though there are some other proposals, but it likely draws on the imagery of erasing people's names from the civil register connoting that they are gone from the land of the living and they aren't coming back in this case. There'll be a resurrection of the unjust, um, but they're not coming back to the land of the living to live in that new earth that God has promised for His people. At the beginning of verse 6, when you look at the New King James, it looks like David briefly turns his attention to the enemy. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. However, when you look at this a little bit more deeply, it looks to be more of a statement 
Um, NASB, for instance, says the enemy has come to an end in everlasting ruins. I think that's more of the idea here. I don't, I don't think you have a break and he's declaring to the enemy, oh enemy, destructions are finished forever. I think he's making more of a declarative statement. The enemy has come to everlasting ruins. And if you look at verse 6, you look at the language here, and you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. The language here speaks to how God has thoroughly finished his enemies. It's a thorough victory. It's a thorough defeat. And there is indeed, brothers and sisters, every Christian in this room, hear this, every person in this room, know there is coming a day when the destructions of every enemy of God will be finished forever. And every enemy will come to destruction. I mean, that's the kind of language that's used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Everlasting destruction. The language in the Greek could connote everlasting ruination. That's not annihilation. It's a way of describing everlasting punishment as everlasting ruination. David saw examples in miniature. He saw enemies end. He saw cities uprooted. He saw the memories of enemies perish. He saw reigns of terror come to an end. And note, you're going to see this in verses 7 and 8, what David is seeing in miniature Well, the full-scale model comes at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch the comparison here. Feel it. He's painted this picture of the destruction of the enemies of God. And then he says this in verses 7 and 8. But the Lord, or but Yahweh, shall endure forever. You see the contrast? It's not between David and his enemies. You know, they're defeated, but I'm established. No, no, no. They're defeated. You've uprooted them. You've blotted out their name. But you, but Yahweh, you endure forever. The language of endure could also be rendered in the Hebrew as sitting. That's why you'll see in some translations the idea of Yahweh sits enthroned forever. His kingdom will never be uprooted. His kingdom cannot be shaken. So now you see the contrast you are meant to feel. You see enemies. You see evil. You see terror. And you know it's temporary. But past that, you see Yahweh on His throne. And that's forever. But Yahweh shall endure forever. They were temporary, as were their kingdoms. But God is eternal. And to use language from Psalm 145, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That gives you some perspective, doesn't it? And that has great application for everyday life for the Christian. You are not living in a universe that is governed by random chance, but by the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. By the triune God of the universe. Your life is not under the ultimate auspices of one government or another, or a collection of public and private partnerships. Your life is not under the auspices of them ultimately. Your life is under Yahweh's governance. This entire universe is under Yahweh's governance. David also wrote, He has prepared His throne for judgment. Second half of verse 7. The word prepared can be rendered as established. But the idea appears to be that the nations, the the enemies of God, they're on a time clock. They can only get away with what they get away with for so long. God's throne is prepared for judgment. If wickedness exists, then the judgment of it is an inevitable consequence of its existence. If wickedness exists, the judgment of it is an inevitable consequence of its existence. The idea is reinforced in verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Now we have some future verbs, right? That This is painting the picture of looking past and seeing tokens of what God will do in the future. He shall judge the world in righteousness. This appears to be the, the moment, speaking of when Christ comes, that He here is emphatic. The verbs are in future tense, and this is where everything is headed. He shall judge the world in righteousness. It's reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, when he was preaching there and he said that God, quote, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Acts seventeen thirty-one. So God has appointed a day. You think of how God created, right? 
we know in the, in the scriptures we're told that all things were created by God and it was created through His Son. So God created through the Son. You think of how God's going to judge the world. How is He going to judge the world? Through His Son. Through the man He has appointed. So you read in Psalm 9, you read right here, that the Lord will endure forever. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Well, you come to the New Testament, you see how that judgment is going to manifest. How is He going to do it? He's going to do it through the Word of God incarnate. Through His Son. And note this. This is good for everybody in this room to know. One of the reasons of the resurrection, one of the reasons, is so that it could be a witness to the whole world that there is coming a resurrection of the just and the unjust. One day, all of the dead will come back to life for the judgment. There will be some who are raised to everlasting life with glorified bodies to forever enjoy God and His kingdom forever and ever. But there are going to be those who are going to be resurrected, to use language from Daniel chapter 12, to everlasting shame. And one of the ways in which God has witnessed to this is through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said He's going to judge the world. He's calling all men right now everywhere to repent, to turn away from their sinful ways, to have a change of thinking as it relates to their own righteousness, to see Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. He's calling all men everywhere to repent. And He has assured all men everywhere that there is coming a judgment. And how has He done that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so let me just exhort you, if you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ... See His resurrection not just as a warning, but as connected to your justification. See Jesus as having died on, the, died on the tree, on the cross for your sins, and having been raised to life for your justification. Turn away from sin and self-righteousness and look to Christ. Lest that day come and you be judged by Christ. Why be judged by the Son of God who laid down His life bearing the judgment for all who would look to Him for the forgiveness of sins? We see here the language as well. He shall administer judgment for the peoples. So he's gonna, the picture is here of Him sitting as a judge. He will judge rightly. He's going to execute the office of ruler with perfect uprightness. He does not succumb to bribery or partiality. There's no crookedness within Him. It's worth noting that the word for uprightness here is in the plural, which may speak to the plurality of the perfections of God's uprightness. He's so upright. He's so just and good that the word had to be plural to speak of that perfection properly. Again, you get the idea that David saw his situation as a kind of representation of what was ultimately to come. Now note, as surely as you can count on that, that there is coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness. It is coming. And the way you escape that is by running to Jesus Christ in the here and now. You don't wait for then. You run to Christ now. If you haven't come to Christ, you should be thinking in your mind, okay, I want to do that right now. George, how can I even do that in this moment? You look to Jesus. You confess with your mouth. You believe in your heart that He is the Son of God and that God raised Him from the dead. You run to Him. That's how you escape that because it's coming. And granted, of course, punishment begins when a person dies without Christ, but there's coming a judgment where the resurrection of the unjust will happen and the sentencing in the lake of fire will follow. You escape that by coming to Him now. And just as you could be assured that that day is coming, there are other things that you could be assured of as well. And we see those things in verses 9 through 12. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. You could be assured of that as well. A refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. So much of this psalm has considered the righteous judgment of God against the wicked. But God is not only a judge... As we see in verse 9, He is also a refuge. That's the emphasis of verse 9. Yahweh will also be a refuge for the oppressed. This word oppressed connotes one who is crushed. To use language from commentators, one who is beat small. It's like one who's cut off. One who's cut off maybe from provisions like water or food. You might say one who's cut off even from hope, temporally speaking. Yahweh will be a refuge to such ones. And the language here is beautiful. He's like a fortress. 
in which His people can run to for safety. So again, in the most ultimate sense, you want to see Him as the refuge you run into to be shielded from the wrath of God. Right? You see Him as the one that you run to. How are you spared from the wrath of God? You run to God. And you trust in Christ. And you find God to be a refuge. And you find the cross to be your shield. Because the Son of God absorbed your wrath. But then, when you find yourself afflicted, when you find yourself persecuted, regardless of whatever times you find yourself in now, whatever may come in the future, you know that in all times, Yahweh is a refuge for those who are oppressed. David knew that. His personal experience was the principle. Refuge for the righteous and judgment upon the wicked so often coincided in David's life. But it is the ultimate reality even if sometimes we don't experience the manifestation of it in the present. We'll get to that very shortly. David wrote in verse 10 that those who know God's name will put their trust in Him. Don't you love that? To know God is to trust God. That's the implication of the language here. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. Well, to know God's name, that speaks of knowing God's attributes, right? We've said this many times, that name here connotes all of who God is, the totality, if you will, of His excellencies and His attributes. So to know God's name, to know who He is, to know what He is like, is to trust God. You can't trust Him if you don't know Him. And if you do know Him, then you do trust Him. And I would argue, I think... The more you know Him, and the better you know Him, the more you'll trust Him. The reason here, most immediately, is for, um, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who seek you. Seek Him for what? In light of the context of the Psalms, seek Him for refuge. Seek Him for help. Seek to know Him better. You don't forsake those who seek you. God's people can rest assured that they are never forsaken by God. God doesn't forsake His people. I've talked to some of you about what I think, my opinion, personal experience, this is subjective, um, but what I think is one of the most difficult trials that a Christian can go through. That sensation of feeling forsaken by God even though you know you're not. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling happen. It could send you into a kind of emotional tailspin. You could be standing in one place. You could be lying in a bed. But if you get a sense, and you know it's not true, but you wonder if, and you start feeling as though you're forsaken by God, I think it is one of the most challenging experiences that a Christian can go through. It's as though you are caught in an undertow. This is, what I, this is how I would describe it. It's as though you're caught in an undertow, and you just can't even gain balance. Yet you're right there. You're standing or you're lying down, and yet to think of you being forsaken by God, I think is the scariest thought to even consider. But if you are a son or daughter of God, rest assured, regardless of what you feel, God's Word has already told you the truth. You are not forsaken. Jesus Christ is not a liar. He said, I will never leave you, and I will not forsake you. God is always with His people. David, I think, here is pointing to pointing the people of God to ultimate truths and realities. Enemies, so just think about this, and we'll close up in verses 11 and 12, but think of some of these ultimate realities. David's pointing his people to these facts. Enemies will be destroyed. God is reigning. He is a refuge. Despite how circumstances may appear, note that, despite how circumstances may appear, regardless of what you go through, despite how circumstances may appear, God never abandons those who have sought Him by grace. He will deliver all of them. After all, He first sought them. (laughs) But then notice verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. So now David, right? He's not just exhorting himself or making declarations himself that he's going to praise but now he's looking to the congregation rather directly and he's telling them in light of these truths in light of the fact that God doesn't forsake his own in light of the fact that he's a refuge in light of the fact that he will judge the wicked in light of the fact that he's going to judge the world in light of all of these things sing praises to Yahweh who dwells in Zion. So your mind there as a Christian probably goes to two places. You think of how God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world. He chose to manifest Himself within the people of Israel. 
And particularly, we think of Mount Zion where he established his throne. And of course, our mind goes to the heavenly Jerusalem at the same time. So we think of how deserving he is of praises in light of what David has wrote. David says, declare his deeds among the people. So again, what David said he was going to do, he now exhorts the people of God to do. I'm not just going to tell of all of his wondrous works. He's telling the people of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you declare his deeds among the people. Great application for every Christian here today. Leave this place and declare some of the deeds of God among people. Tell them what God has done. Tell them that he's punished sin in Jesus Christ on the cross. Tell them that he has given assurance of a judgment to come by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Declare his deeds among the people. And then we get to this. Verse 12. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. You might have wondered why I was accenting those words, despite how things appear. Right? And you might have wondered what I meant when I said earlier, David knows that not all the people of God are going to be delivered temporally, though they all will be delivered eternally. Even the Psalms don't hide from that reality. Even David, who was so delivered by God so often, doesn't hide from that. He says, when he avenges blood. And the implication is that there is going to be blood that is wrongly shed. That there are going to be people of God that suffer and die at the hands of wicked and terrible wickedness. God's not hiding from that reality. He's saying it's going to happen. The scripture doesn't hide from that. You're only four chapters into the Bible. And you see Abel killed by his brother Cain. You think of what God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He told him, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood didn't go unnoticed by God. He saw it. And God is the avenger of blood. He punished Cain. He punished Cain in that immediate context, temporally. Cain thought his punishment was too much to bear. He said so. His punishment is too much to bear. But Cain's punishment didn't end there. Cain was of the wicked one. You see that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. And he had a far greater punishment that was awaiting him. When Jude wrote of the false prophets, whom he described as those for whom the... Blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Verse 13 of Jude. He described them as having gone the way of Cain. Verse 11. In due time, God avenges blood. He remembers them, the scripture says here. He does not forget the cry of the humble. So part of what this psalm is doing is it's causing the people of God, whether they be persecuted and oppressed in a given time or season, to know that God is an ultimate refuge for His people. And that one day, every wrong will be judged and punished. And the people of God are to find refuge in God. And part of the refuge they find is not only for the forgiveness of their own sins by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, but they find refuge in the midst of their persecution by knowing that God remembers You can imagine a son or daughter of God suffering at the hands of wicked men and women and saying, God, don't you know what I'm going through? Don't you care? I feel abandoned. I feel forsaken. I'm seeing what's happening to my family. I'm seeing what's happening to my community. You can imagine the people of God crying out. And the Word of God, by the grace of God, may ring forth in their minds, when He avenges blood, He remembers them. He will not forget. He does not forget the cry of the humble. The humble here identified as God's people. A fitting description for God's people. So he knows. He hasn't forgotten. And in one time, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will punish wickedness. And then at the subsequent sentencing that happens, he will make sure that every wrong is paid for, for those who haven't come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. As one commentator said, every act of deliverance is a cause for praise. And every act of deliverance is a preview of the final deliverance to come which is a greater cause, which is a cause for greater praise. And that's what we see here so far in Psalm 9. So I close today 
um, with just calling your attention briefly to verse 13. For anyone who has not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saying, what can I do in light of hearing this? I know God's going to judge sinners. I know that I've sinned against God. What could I do? I would encourage you to use the language from verse 13, which reads, Have mercy on me, O Lord. You see the mercy that God has afforded to sinners in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then you say, Lord, have mercy on me. And even as you're saying that, you're believing that Jesus Christ died for you. And then for all the people of God, I I would encourage you to go back where this psalm began. And declare praise to God. Tell of His marvelous works. Be glad and rejoice in Him. Sing praise to His name. Why? Because all of His enemies ultimately will turn back. He sits on the throne right now and He rules and He reigns forever. Kings and kingdoms will pass away, but there is one kingdom and one name that will not pass away. The kingdom of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is right now a refuge for you. You may not be persecuted and oppressed. You may not be crushed and cut off. But maybe you need a refuge right now and He is that refuge to you. Run to Him and find refuge in Him. That's who He is. Lastly, I say... You just look at the 12 verses that we considered and you see a lot of who God is. And I'm going to close in a word of prayer in a moment. But if you were to look at these 12 verses, you would see that He is the following at least. He is praiseworthy. He is a marvelous worker. He is a joy bringer. He is the ultimate and exalted sovereign. He is a just judge. He is the destroyer of the wicked. He is forever enthroned. He is a place of security. That's who our God is. And there's much more that could be said about Him. But Lord, we'll continue next time in our study of Psalm 9. Father, we thank You that there are so many reasons given to us in the text of Scripture to praise You. I thank You, Heavenly God, for all that we've seen so far in Psalm 9. I thank You that when we read through something like First and Second Samuel and we see Your judgment upon the enemies of the people of God, what we see there in miniature, we know will one day come to a kind of full-scale model, as it were. And that You do avenge Your persecuted people. We thank You, Lord, for the refuge that You are to us. And I pray, Father, that every one of us in this room would see the need to find refuge in You. That even as you prepared an ark in the days of Noah so that those who would come to the ark might find refuge from the flood. Father, may you find in this room a complete, total room full of people who have already gone to or in the process of going, perhaps even in this moment, into the ark who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for us, in in the times in which we live and seeing things that are going on in our land or or, in this world, I pray, Heavenly Father, that You would help us to praise You even as David did. Looking at the ways in which You've delivered Your people in the past. Looking at the ways in which You may help and deliver us in the present. But knowing, Father, the ultimate deliverance that is coming for Your people in the future. And that the enemies of the people of God... And your enemies, Lord, are ultimately on, as it were, borrowed time. You will judge the world in righteousness through the man you have appointed. And we thank you for that man, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to praise you. Tell of your marvelous works. Help us to do that even as we go forward today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.